Black Cats Run Podcast. I'm Tristan Black Ingersoll, and this is Black Cats Run. Today's episode, going to explore a little bit about how to manage your training, how to design your training sessions, and how those sessions should be organized into an overall pattern, and also address one of the key issues is that the same induced stress could be perceived very differently between different people, and how this is a complicating factor for planning training. If you enjoyed this or other episodes, you can follow us on our Instagram account, at Black Cats Run, and you can also message us there if you're interested in consultation about how you can apply this to your training. Let's get into today's episode. You can find that you've dug yourself out of a hole between one day and the next, and it might be for no particular reason or nothing that's readily discernible at any rate. Of course, there's a lot of marketing around this stuff about recovery interventions and, you know, you need to jump in an ice bath or you need to eat these particular foods or do these kinds of stretches. And this kind of thinking has been around for a long time. And it's in probably human nature to try to solve these kinds of issues or problems as we confront them. I mean, it's sort of from a rational point of view, like, why wouldn't you try to do that? Or even if you just rewind to Aristotelian thinking, like, logically, um, why wouldn't you want to do that? Wednesday morning, I went running and ended up running for only about 40 minutes. Um, And part of that was probably due to time constraint rather than anything else. But, you know, apart from the fact, you know, running pretty slowly, I mean, the reality is in the grand scheme of things, I think I do more and more of my runs slower than nine minutes a mile um, than I ever have before, even as my running fitness has probably gotten better than it has been in the last three or four years. There was a period where I wasn't running very much, and so that obviously if you don't practice something, then your proficiency is going to decline. But, you know, I did this run of about 40 minutes, and my average heart rate was 128. And there was a time when I used to think of Uh, lower heart rate as being like, oh, that's a really good sign. Like the lower my heart rate is when I train, uh, the better. And, you know, because there's that concept that, well, the higher your heart rate is, you know, the more strain or more work you're doing. And then, you know, the lower it is, the better. And I'd heard things in the past where people would, you know, be complaining about, oh, I can't get my heart rate up. I can't get my heart rate up. And I was sort of like, well, I mean, you don't really necessarily want to have your heart rate up. I mean, if you're performing work with a lower heart rate, then, you know, that's like not a bad thing, right? You're becoming more efficient because if you think about it over the longer time scale, if you're going to get faster, then it has to be because your heart rate, your cardiovascular work needed um, at a given level of of watts or velocity is going to have to uh, decrease. But, you know, you can have to recognize that 
you're going to need to combine your sensory uh, impressions of what's going on with your fitness and your training at any given time from a variety of different places. And this was a run where I'm out exercising and it just deep, deeply embedded fatigue of just like in the legs where like minimal effort was maximal effort. There wasn't really uh, any kind of a strain and anything going slightly uphill, like you could feel that resistance. And I think for a long time, the reality is I just ignored this stuff. And one of these things or phrases or truisms that gets regurgitated all the time is people saying, oh, well, you when you're in your 20s and you're in your early 20s or when you're a teenager, you can just do stuff and you know you don't need to recover and you can just feel good and go hard every day. And I think that's totally inaccurate. I think that when we're newer to this stuff or younger to this stuff, I think younger and newer tend to go hand and foot. And so really what we're talking about is that when you're in neophyte, you don't know really know what's going on and it doesn't occur to you to maybe question or wonder about why you're feeling from one day to the next. And, you know, you're thinking about what influences performance, especially if you do this stuff in a team sport environment where there's a coach assigned to tell you what to do. I mean, that really externalizes a lot of that personal intellectual responsibility to try to interpret and understand what's going on in your training. And you don't have to think about it. You just show up and you do stuff and you do stuff and you do stuff. Um, and I've mentioned before, which is one of my all-time uh, favorite, you know, how stupid we can be um, in our thinking that, you know, when I was running in college, you know, for me, it was a, my understanding that I had created for myself is that, well, when I get off the bus, um, if we take the bus somewhere, I'm not going to feel good uh, because when we sit on the bus, it, it ruins my legs. And we basically did very, very few meets at home. I think in the entire four years, uh, I was an athlete uh, at the at Bates. I think we did one meet where I, at least for me, that I ran uh, on the outdoor track. You know, so we, you know, you don't, it's not like high school uh, where you have a, you know, like it seems like maybe a third to 50% of your meets. I mean, my junior year in high school, because there were 150 athletes on the girls team and another 60 athletes on the boys team um, the district didn't want to make busing available uh, for the team so we actually every single meet that wasn't an invitational was a home meet and you know for some reason uh, it happened to align that the people on our team who were better than me and the people on the other teams who were better than me never showed up for the half mile so I won the half mile at every single meet at uh, home meet that year, which I think, who knows, maybe unconsciously <laughs> that previous experience in high school had sort of reinforced that notion that, oh, well, when I don't have to, to drive uh, to the race, I'm going to feel better. And but that kind of reasoning was very logical, right? I'm making this correlation. And, you know, some of our meets were close by if we did something, you know, with uh, Bowden or uh, Colby um uh, or, you know, we went over to Pineland Farms, like that was pretty short. So, you know, I could all fit this into my paradigm. And, you know, the reality is, is that I wasn't recovering better, or it wasn't that I wasn't noticing fatigue when I was younger. But 
you know, a lot of people just don't remember what that was like or, you know, they weren't actually doing it that at, the, at that age. So they hear somebody spout off a truism like that, that, oh, well, when you're younger, you can recover more. And, you know, as you get older, you need to focus more on recovery. I think the better explanation is just as you have more experience and experience happens with the passage of time. So therefore, it's necessarily that as you get older, you will have more experience. And I think if you have experience where you continue to be persistent in your pursuit of these things and your effort to problem solve these things, you just start to become more and more sophisticated. And what sophistication would look like in this case is just better at trying to understand cause and effect. So this kind of run happened all of the time um, for me, you know, at that point. But you know, and I, when I do these kinds of runs and I feel like this or, you know, on the bike, it's not exactly the same level of fatigue because it's so easy to just go into coasting mode and you can go out and do a ride and basically be doing a hiking level intensity or walking level intensity. And like, well, I'm, I rode my bike, I rode 50 miles, but you have this much greater range of what that looks like. But running, one of the things that makes running so hard compared to cycling is that not only do you have a constant demand for work, because uh, if you're not working, you're not moving, but you also have a higher minimum level of intensity um, that you can do. And then the on the upper end, you know, just to frame this completely, um, on the upper end, like the maximum level of intensity is a lot lower because you don't have all these natural breaks. Like you can, um, you know, create that sensation of what we call oxygen debt, you know, pushing over the top of a little hill on the bike. And then you can just stop pedaling down the other side and let your heart rate come back down to where you're comfortable and then start pedaling again. But running, you have to constantly do work. So it's a very narrow band of intensity that you can be in. So I just think you're going to be more sensitive to that fatigue there. And you know, you could argue that if you run and cycle or, or do anything else and run, um, you're going to be able to use that running as a really good way to tell uh, how fatigued you are at any given time. And what you want to do really is you want to avoid being fatigued. And in an environment where, you know, in college where you're, you know, training with um, a bunch of other people a lot of the time, or even if you're not, you know, and I did a fair number of runs on my own because people didn't want to run at a time that I thought was convenient or people want to go out and basically run as close to six minute pace as possible. I mean, I, one of the runs that I remember uh, doing as a great example of this is we had this loop called Cemetery which was about eight miles and it was called cemetery because we ran, you know, the sloop um, where it kind of the about halfway through the loop, we cut through this cemetery um, down onto this road that kind of went along by the Androscoggin river for a mile. And then we, you know, meandered our way back to campus. And, you know, I remember doing this loop once in 48 minutes and it was one of these things that kind of blew my mind that, well, I can't believe I did cemetery in 48 minutes. Now, now, though, I would look at that and I would say, that's so stupid. I was only exercising for 48 minutes. But when you have that, when you get in that tunnel vision and you kind of get really set in those kinds of environments where these things are constructed as significant and meaningful, you can forget that. And the idea of like doing the loop in 48 minutes felt so monumental and you're not really recognizing like, 
wow, all I did today was exercise for 48 minutes. And, you know, it was made worse because, you know, those 48 minutes, the first four miles I ran in about 26 minutes. And then I ran the last four miles in 22 minutes. And so I went from running 6.30 pace to then just ripping the last four miles in 5.30s. And which, you know, for me was surprising because a lot of the times I wasn't really paying attention to the exact, um, you know, time of the loop or whatever. But in this instance, like I was kind of aware, I could, you know, was aware that I was running a lot faster because there was a guy on the team who, um, for whatever reason, found me to be super obnoxious and did not appreciate, you know, my enthusiasm or interest in getting faster, right? I mean, it's inevitable that you're going to have pointless personality conflict. And, you know, he kind of wanted to bury me on this run. And for whatever reason, the stars aligned and I was feeling really fresh and I just ripped him apart on this run. Uh, you know, Pyrrhic victory, because I could never do anything like that in the races. And that's, I think, though, indicative of that, right? Is I go out and I do this run and like doing that is insane, you know, just doing eight miles at six minute pace, given the level of racing I was at, was idiotic. Um, but then, never mind, like going from six thirties down to five thirties, you know, for the last four miles is just even more, you know, random. It was more impressive in terms of data than most of the workouts that I was doing, and those kinds of things you know, that's what's introducing all of this fatigue. But, you know, it's a space in which, and this is the point of it, it's a space in which you don't think about it like that. You know, I didn't think like, man, I'm going to pay the piper for this one. You know, it was just like, whoa, I'm really fast. That's awesome. You know, and then I went out and absolutely stunk it up at, you know, whatever the upcoming meet was. I don't even remember exactly what happened at the meet, you know, which shows how, you know, unremarkable that must have been for me. But, you know, and feeling that kind of deep fatigue. And it's our perception of the, of that stuff that's changing or evolving over time. And so on this 40-minute run, you know, now when I feel this, I recognize this, that, okay, this is fatigue, and it's it's come from training. And, you know, I had talked in the last episode about, you know, getting in the hole. And sometimes when you get in the hole, um, you can stay stuck in there for what feels like a, you know, huge amount of time. And, you know, the reality is I think it was basically about um, a week and a half, I would say, that I sort of felt like I was in a rut. And it goes along, and I think it sort of plays out the way it's going to play out. And I think you can basically decide, okay, I'm going to largely continue to do my level of activity, and I'm going to accept the fact that I'm probably going to be going really slow, and I'm not going to be able to do anything at any particular higher kind of feeling of uh, intensity or I'm not going to do the stuff that psychologically makes me feel like I'm productive and making progress or you can just like go into total shut it down mode and I don't think it's a good idea to go into shut it down mode just like go in and and accept um, where you're at and like Tuesday you know I did four by 2k and it felt awful you know, so I was still feeling this fatigue. And then, you know, I do this run on Wednesday, it feels awful. And then the next day, you know, run and just kind of 
mindlessly go pretty easy, but probably didn't notice the fatigue as much. And just for frame of reference, since we're talking about the data, on that, that was also 4x2K at threshold, and that felt way better. Um, and I actually tried out a new pair of shoes, which I am not a shoe enthusiast, but I am trying to be more uh, mindful of the fact that if, hey, you know, I'm going to pay 60 or 80 bucks even, you know, to go out and do a race, I want to make sure that I can actually, like, do it um, and not, you know, be having to stop or ruining my experience because something like my footwear I'm not paying attention to. So I got a pair of the New Balance um, marathon sort of, you know, their super shoe. Uh, and, you know, I wore that and it felt fine. To be honest, it did not feel anything like the Alpha Fly. It felt very unremarkable as a shoe, but, it, you know, it didn't hurt. Um, but I didn't feel like it had any particular kind of advantage, which was sort of a bummer because I would like a shoe that's comfortable, but also, you know, I, I kind of think that a huge part of the Alpha Fly is the, is the placebo effect, that sensation you know, of giving you that sensation of feeling, you know, more, I guess you might say explosive, but feeling faster on the day, I think has a hugely beneficial effect in t on your psychology. And I was kind of underwhelmed by the New Balance shoe. But, you know, I did the 4x2K, felt way better than it did um, on Tuesday's session. And, you know, my paces for these things aren't, you know, anything to write home about. But, you know, I've found since I've been doing this session um, as much as possible twice a week on Tuesdays and Thursdays and been working at this intensity that um, my tempo for these has sort of gradually come down of its own accord. Um, and, you know, so I'm running these about closer to seven minute pace. And the last one was like maybe 655 pace, but didn't feel incredible. And so then, then I come back and I said, well, I felt fine. And I actually expected to suck on the bike in the afternoon. So instead of doing like the Alp, I said, well, I'll just do um, the Alp to Zwift segment. I said, well, I'll just do like the mountain route with the Epic KOM and I'll just go up that. And then if I don't, you know, feel good, I'll just hit the turnaround button and do something else. So I ended up doing that and I ended up feeling very easy. And it's like all of a sudden you're like out of the rut. Um, and that's that sense of no particular reason. And, you know, I'm not ice bathing. I'm not, you know, taking trying to find the right anti-inflammatory foods. Um, and I'm not even like upping my sleep, which is I to my detriment. I mean, I think in general I need to, I will probably benefit from sleeping for 10 hours. But it's really hard to rationalize if you get up in the morning, exercise, go to work for the whole work day exercise and then it's like you know you eat and then it's like seven o'clock or seven thirty, and it's like okay if I want to sleep you know for what would probably be good I need to go to bed like right now and that sensation of not having that time in the day to kind of do whatever or in some cases sort of do nothing really makes it hard for me to go to bed and I'm sure other people have that problem too but the point is, I'm not really doing anything. I'm just the passage of time. And then all of a sudden, you just kind of snap out of it. And I think that's key, you know, to understand. Because for a lot of people, it seems like the case is that um, there's this paranoia in the sense of, oh, okay, unless I apply this immediate and dramatic intervention, um, I'm not really going to 
be able to ever get out of this and they'll be just be stuck in that state. And then marketing wise, people take advantage of that and they try to sell us a bunch of crap and they're, you know, playing off of our um, fears and anxieties and, and doubts. And, you know, it's easy, right, to look for that solution, right? How can I fix that? How can I solve that? But all of a sudden it's better. And I know it's better too because of what I, I did. I did the Epic KOM and then I said, oh, I'll just go back down and I'll do it again. So, you know, I wrote for about 80 minutes and in those 80 minutes I had, you know, two 27-minute efforts about where I did, you know, the first one was 247 watts and my average heart rate was 151 and the max heart rate point on that was 151, sorry, um, was 159. And then, you know, I just turned my the bike around on the Swift and, you know, took it back, back down, took myself back down to the bottom and then I did it again and I did it in 254 um, and my average heart rate was 150 and my max was 159. It felt great, felt easy and it's the kind of thing where it's like, okay, I don't really feel that good. You know, I watched this, uh, one of the things I've gotten more interested in, you know, and I think that's a part of doing this pod is trying to look at more and more if I, if possible, about how people talk about what they're doing. And I found it's actually been shockingly difficult uh, to get people to want to come on the podcast. Um, and I think part of that is time. And I think maybe people don't know if they have anything worth saying. So I guess I've sort of been unconsciously trying to make up for that by trying to, you know, watch like a lot of people, more and more people, it seems like have YouTube channels now where they're, you know, Ken Burnsifying. um, the race experience with like awful music. And I was watching this thing the other day with uh, this guy, I think Sam Long is his name. He's kind of like an intense American triathlete, long distance triathlete guy with the terrible mustache right now. And um, he, you know, was talking about doing this session where he did a swim and workout and then he did a bike workout and then he did a run workout. And, you know, as he's doing the run, he's saying to the camera that, okay, you know, this actually feels surprisingly easy. So, you know, probably going to need to do another one because it's too easy. And, you know, he so he runs his last, you know, rep. Um, He had been running like 525 to 530 pace. And then he runs his, you know, last rep at like 510 or 511 pace. Oh, you know, that, that felt pretty good. And I think we can look at that stuff and reach the conclusion of like, okay, yeah, like that's what we should do when we feel good, we need to open it up. And I think that's the kind of stuff that always leads to fatigue. And I am not, I know that a lot of these people, you know, have kind of a, and I I totally get, totally get it. And I think it's legitimate. A lot of these people have sort of this kind of level of, you know, eye rolling to like irritation with, you know, the armchair, armchair, uh, you know, generals or armchair athletes or armchair coaches who watch their stuff and think about it. And, you know, I, I get why you would feel like that. But it's also, to me, I think the value of putting this stuff out here is that it is creating those conversations and discussions. Um, and I don't know this person, obviously, um, and I don't consider myself to be super knowledgeable about that. Um, but this was his session that he was doing to, I guess, you know, specifically prepare or simulate or target or build confidence for this, um, you know, triathlon event in Miami, um, Clash Miami or whatever it's called. 
And, you know, he had won it the year before. And, you know, I'm sure on some level, like anybody would wanted to win it again. And he ended up not winning it again. Now, I don't think it's because of this workout, but I think this idea, and this is what this kind of made me reflect on, is the idea that when you feel good, you need to lean into that and sort of push it to the point where you've used up all that feeling good, I think is a mistake. Because then you're saying like, okay, like I'm accumulating interest, like I'm showing a return on my training investment. Okay, let me now just like spend that all down to nothing. I think that's a huge um, tendency. And I also think in some contexts, it can be a big mistake. You know, I don't know how he, he felt in the race. Maybe he felt great and he was really happy with it. Um, and I'm not, because I'm not trying to speak to, okay, well, that's the reason why blank happened. I, I think that that, um, I don't have the knowledge to say that. But I do think that that sense of like, okay, this doesn't feel like anything I need to do more, I think is something that you hear come up again and again and again. Um, and, you know, my sort of attempt to be anthropological and uh, ethnographic in a certain sense of going and trying to look at a lot of people's stuff and trying to look for, well, how are they talking about, you know, their perception of what they're doing and how are they deciding, you know, um, what to actually do versus how they feel and you know, there's this ongoing narrative of like, well, I tell myself not to overtrain, which is like when they feel absolutely horrible. In other words, they've already overtrained, then they're all about not overtraining. And then when they feel really good, you know, then they're like, oh, well, when you feel good, you know, you got a really minimum level of work. And I think a part of it maybe is too, is like, oh man, like, am I transforming to another level? Let's kind of find out, let's explore that. And I think that, you know, if you're resisting that, then you're, that's the overtraining. I think we think of overtraining as being, okay, I'm tired and I can't do this workout, but I'm going to do the workout anyway. And I think that would be overtraining. But the reality is you're so tired at that point that you can't do the workout. Now, maybe you're going to get injured, but, and which is another thing that you could say could be included in the concept of overtraining. But I don't think that you're necessarily going to overtrain in the sense that you're just going to like torpedo yourself. So that I think you've already, you know, done that, right? And so sort of saying like, I feel good at 525 to 530 pace, like I'm not a 510 pace guy, you know, I mean, if that were true, I don't know if that's true, but I'm just sort of taking this example and turning it into now a hypothetical to think about this concept. Um, I'm not, you know, a 510 pace guy, right? So why do I, just because I can feel that, doesn't mean that I need to be doing that. I'm not ready for that. But there's that belief also that, okay, if I go out and I access that additional, um, you know, couple seconds per quarter pace, or I, you know, add those extra 20 watts, that that's really meaningful, and that's going to be significant. And, you know, for me, so I do this, and I'm like, well, I could do another one. You know, I feel like I could do this I feel I don't the end is not in sight at this point, right? In terms of how many I can do. I say part of it's easy to stop when it's like 6:30 in the evening and you're like, "Okay, I'm I'm over this right now. I want to do something else. I want to, you know, go to bed and eat." So, you know, I make myself get off and I don't feel like I've done anything. Um and then, you know, the next day, you know, you get up and walking around and you're oh, just in the morning, right? Right away. Okay. I can feel a little bit, um, in the legs. I can feel a little bit of that muscular, you know, work, you know, and for whatever reason, 
yesterday was my calf muscles for some reason, you know, that felt that level of fatigue. And so you can't really tell what you're doing. And if you're pushing yourself, um, I guess what I mean about what we're doing, I mean, you can tell what you're doing in terms of you can measure it, but you can't necessarily tell what you're doing is going to lead to that sort of, you know, magical threshold of, okay, I've got the fatigue. And I think people say this stuff all the time, but like it's better to underdo than to overdo. That's like very, very, very true. And we kind of hear this stuff and we can, most of us are capable of regurgitating it, but we don't actually apply it in practice because these temptations to do this stuff are in the way that we see. And these are like, when you look at the YouTube stuff now, you can see these people who are, you know, the quote unquote high performing athletes or the quote unquote elite athletes or whatever, you know, pop culture terminology we want to use for them. We see that, you know, everybody struggles with this. Okay. And when we see these higher performing people do this stuff, we tend to think, you know, that Malcolm Gladwell concept of outliers that, okay, that's something to emulate. But I think it's more so that, well, that's something that everybody struggles with and that, you know, the difference is, you know, yeah, if somebody can run 48 minutes for 10 miles and you can run 62 minutes for 10 miles, you might feel like they're an alien species compared to you. But the reality is that's a very, very, very subtle, subtle difference in the grand scheme of things between you and them. And that in terms of that overall complex of, you know, how do you think about yourself and how do you make sense of yourself? Like, I think we all struggle with the kind of the same sorts of things. And, you know, for me, what I've noticed since trying to be more extensive in my training um, with the lactate threshold, which I would say really means to say, doing more of my total training time at a higher level of work, uh, which when you think about it like that, then maybe the, the outcome isn't that surprising. But I've been surprised nonetheless by how hungry and also how just dead tired um, it has made me. And by dead tired, I don't mean deep muscular fatigue. I mean, most of the time I've, you know, haven't had that is when I do the sessions and I stick to the limit and I ignore the fact that it feels too easy in my, you know, um, historical brain, right? My, my historical sense of what does it mean for me to train or work out and what that needs to feel like, you know, and it's a big shift to go from sitting in, uh, you know, classes in college and, you know, writing out splits for different paces in your notebook as like a self-management strategy, like, all day long because you're so worked up and and stressed and about like the upcoming workout and like you just know you're going to fail and you're trying to like convince yourself that okay these paces aren't really that bad or whatever and then it doesn't matter to then you know when that's your sort of anticipatory complex to then this stuff is basically by comparison is so easy that you don't even need to almost basically don't even notice that you're doing anything that's a really difficult adjustment to make. And so when you have that concept of this feels so easy, it's then you kind of project your sense of, well, what am I going to feel as a result of this? And you think you're going to feel nothing. But the reality is you're now using way more energy, um, you know, in a significant portion of the time you're spending exercising. And well, that's going to be consequence in the kind of like actual fatigue that makes training hard to do over the long term, which is like being dead tired. And, you know, 
I know that the consequence um, of staying up until 10 and getting up at 5 um, is exacerbating this and that if I slept more, I wouldn't really have this problem. But, you know, the reality is with my lifestyle choices, I guess you could say, you know, I get to about 10 o'clock in the morning and between 10 o'clock in the morning and until, you know, about three o'clock or three thirty in the afternoon, you know, my brain feels like it's turned to mush, like total brain fog. It's like borderline. It's the hardest thing to handle for me with this stuff is sort of having that's like the worst part of the day. Um, the, the training is easy, like it's more stimulating. And, you know, maybe depending on what you get to do during the day, you know, as a teacher, a lot of stuff that you have to do is like, you know, can be really challenging because of, you know, how repetitive it is, right? You're having a lot of the same kinds of interactions um, and you're working to get people to move people to towards a point that is, and this isn't a bad thing, like as a teacher, you want that to be true, but you're trying to help people get to a point that is so below your own uh, kind of skill level that like you're not getting any kind of like real engagement, you know, from from talking about these these problems or whatever. And, you know, you've done it so many times that like it's not like it's like getting you amped. Right. It's not like, oh, I'm really challenging myself with my skill level here. It's like something you're really efficient at. And I think if you have a opportunity to do things during the day that are more engaging for your brain, I actually think it would help because I think it can actually give you that stimulus and take you out of that state. But when you have things where you're doing things that are repetitive or as a teacher, right, you might teach the same exact lesson, you know, back to back. Um, And then that's when I really notice that level of fatigue is when I'm doing things that don't really, you know, engage me and aren't kind of like new, you know, or novel, but are just very routine. Then I feel that sort of deep sense of fatigue. And just, you know, at the end of the day, being genuinely exhausted and getting up and just feeling like, oh, my God, I don't want to get up. This is awful. Um, But when you do the exercise, it actually becomes even more appealing because it's like, well, I know if I'm exercising, I'm going to feel normal. I'm going to feel pretty good. So that kind of stuff is the actual, I think, kind of fatigue that we should be looking, you know, to to manage and you know, when we think about that concept of a limiting factor, you know, I think that's a really different concept to think about fatigue. And I also think it changes our concept of what recovery is. And because then recovery isn't about, you know, managing this, you know, process of, you know, you know, skeletal muscle, deep fatigue, but it's really about like, you know, are you willing to make the trade-off of sleeping more? And of course, every Friday I say, okay, well, next week I'm going to do an experiment and I'm going to go to bed at eight o'clock every night and I'm going to see what that is like. And then I just don't do it. <laughs> so if I ever do it, I will report back on the podcast of the if, whether or not that was a miracle cure. But what we're talking about is this distinction between no pain, no gain versus train, don't strain. And I think that these are phrases that are commonly familiar to people. And, you know, the no pain, no gain has who knows how many millions of dollars has been spent by, you know, high school uh, booster clubs printing that, getting that screen printed on T-shirts for high school athletes. But that fits into that glorification, Hercule, um, 
Herculean, heroic narrative kind of bullshit. And, you know, the train don't strain is something that people say and then nobody really gets what that means, right? People just sort of continue to do the same thing. And then if things are going well, they go, oh, yeah, well, you know, train don't strain. And <laughs> but that doesn't mean, right, the success, you know, you can improve without doing things in the best possible way. And that happens all the time. And we can also convince ourselves that, you know, certain levels of improvement are more sig- significant than they are. You think about like the longer a running race is, kind of that standard deviation of performance becomes like, in- you know, increasingly broad, where, you know, it's possible that in an event like something as long as um, a marathon that, you know, you could be plus or minus seven to 10 minutes off of a center point and still be at the same level of fitness. And I think people like to think that they're in, you know, oh, I'm in 250 shape or I'm in, you know, 242 shape. And they have these, you know, down to the 60 second window. And we think that, okay, if we're one minute slower or faster, that that means something. It's just like in the mile, you know, people think that there's this difference between 419 and, you know, 417 and 418, that these are all totally different things. And the reality is your plus or minus in the miles, it's probably at least a 10 second range. And, you know, people can look at this stuff and then, you know, if they go out and they, you know, run what they think they should, then they're doing it the right way. And so they're going to assign all of those, you know, all those pearls of wisdom and I executed those, right? Oh yeah, I train, don't strain, man. I'm all about that. But, you know, the reality is I think most people, um, you know, go out and they, they build their expectations and based on what they've done in training and, you know, that might not really be reflective of what they could actually do if they were training better and more effectively. And I think the aspect of this is that people are, you know, even the people who say train, don't strain are usually straining in their training. And you go back to that Sam Long example of, you know, oh, I feel good. You got to make sure, you know, you do whatever. It's like, well, you're amped because you feel great. And, you know, that's good. Now you have the opportunity to train and not strain, right? Put money in the bank. So if we think about this concept of there being like a spectrum of transitioning effort, and there's a graph for this on the Black Cats Run Instagram page, if you want to check this out. Um, But you think about this idea of a spectrum of transitioning effort. And this is kind of my attempt to reinterpret all of these zones on the basis of, you know, how does perceived exertion change in the way that we actually can easily recognize? Um, And then recognizing also that that's going to correlate to, um, you know, your accumulated lactate because the lactate accumulation is a reflection of energy production versus um, efficient ability to use that energy. So in that sense, and you could think about this sort of as being like the three zones you see in the polarized model, but I think the polarized model as a pedagogical tool has kind of like blown up in its own face based on what things look like and Part of that is that, you know, people will sort of impose their own, you know, narrative on it. It's like when you think about pseudo intellectualism, um, when people write things in these really contrived academic sounding ways and they put lots of things in italics, um, you know, what it does is because it's so difficult to try to be confident, you know, what somebody is understanding, you know, you will sort of end up basically just like 
using that as a projection of your own thinking, but then think, wow, you know, I've discovered this profound thing in this external source, source, but it's actually just a projection of your own ideas. And I think that the polarized model works like that, um, where people say totally wild um, and inconsistent things about it, but they all think that they've arrived at it. And I think it's because, you know, diagrams can, are diagrams uh, like rubrics make the most sense to the people who already have achieved mastery in that area. And when we want to learn how to do something, we don't want to look at a rubric or a diagram. But on the other hand, there's a lot of value to those at the same time. So you have to do multiple things. And so we're talking about this diagram as well as uh, referring people to look at it if you're so inclined. So it's similar to the polarized thing, right? Having laid that qualifier out there, it's similar in the sense that it kind of tries to look at these three states of exertion. And to me, I would say the first state, which is sort of represented in this sort of sand color, uh, is easy breathing. There's little or no perception of muscular demand, little to no cognitive stress. And the second state is when your breathing becomes steady, when you, you can tell that there's muscular demand, it's moderate cognitive stress. Like if your mind wanders, you tend to sort of slide back out of that into that sand colored zone. And I have this one in sort of a light blue and then in kind of a lavender purple color, um, heavy breathing. That's where there's intense muscular demand. There's intense cognitive strain where you're really actively like every stride, every contraction, every breath, forcing yourself to stay in that state. Okay. And in between these, okay, we have these respiratory uh, thresholds or these ventilatory thresholds, which are things that people can easily perceive, um, which is the shift in our breathing as we go, right, through levels of work in exercise. And both of these transition points are talked about as being a lactate threshold, and I've labeled them accordingly. And I think we can think of those as these sort of like spaces, okay? I hate to use the word zone because it has such weighted uh, connotation or meaning in exercise uh, and training culture these days because of the ways in which it's used to be labeling. But we have these sort of transitions where it's not like you um, have this instantaneous snap from one perception of feel to a second perception of feel. But you can tell when you're kind of like in that liminal state, that transition from one to the other. And then as you continue to escalate your work, at some point it becomes extremely clear that you're in that new state. So it's not that these are necessarily defined that, well, between this percent and this percent of such and such maximum, you know, you're in that, you know, state. It's just that, you know, it's ambiguous. We're like, I don't know, it kind of feels still pretty easy, but like, I'm also kind of working. And again, using the, I guess this is the, you know, pick on, you know, random, innocent, uh, YouTubing athlete episode, but going back to that Sam Long episode, right? You're doing your, you know, your run intervals at the end of your, you know, your training session for the day and, you know, you're feeling good, right? And I think that's probably because you're kind of in that, oh, I'm kind of in that space, right? Where it's like liminal, right? Where like, I'm not exactly one thing, but I'm not clearly the other. 
and then it's like, oh, this is great, you know, and then the reason why people go fast, you know, is because we want to push ourselves to see what can we do. So it's that tendency people have is to say, oh, let me keep going until I get into that blue zone, right, to that really steady breathing. And what we should be doing is being like, this is great, I'm in this state, and I, this is where I want to be. And that idea of lactate, you know, threshold training, and this is where you go to other episodes where we've talked historically about what this looks like. We've talked about, you know, the pedagogical approaches that people have used to identify this. Now, you know, John Marcus has articulated in the On Coaching podcast that anything in the sand color zone is recovery. And I think what Arthur Lydiard has said is that, you know, up to like and within 30% of this ventilatory threshold one, you know, that's like the super productive state, that that's where you get most of the training. Those are two totally different ideas when you start to think about it, right? The idea that everything in the sand colored zone is recovery. And then you think about what the term recovery means. It basically means it's unproductive, right? Now, some people say you get better when you recover, um, but that doesn't Nobody takes that to mean that, well, you do recovery training and then that's the effective training. We use that to basically mean that, okay, you know, we can't just, you know, even though we're like a big, big, strong athlete person, we just, we still can't go out and just go ham, you know, every day. You know, I guess we've got to have some sort of self-restraint and, you know, people love recovery when their legs are wrecked and they hate recovery when they're chomping at the bit. But if we think about this stuff from a perspective of some kind of like, I think maybe sort of more sort of like natural principles. I think we start to recognize that pushing ourselves up this ladder is actually kind of stupid. Um, so glycolysis, right, Ener- form of energy production relating to sugar, right. Let's not make this um, something where we need to go into it for twenty minutes, right. So let's just think about it as energy production uh, related to sugar. Deeper understandings are good. But um, staying on the track of the point we're trying to make is also good. So anaerobic glycolysis, which is, you know, this energy uh, production from sugar that's happening, you know, I mean, the term suggests in the absence of, absence of oxygen, but it might be simpler to just say that, okay, this is sort of like post-mitochondrial peak, um, you know, where you, you have to get energy from other places. The qualifier here is, Energy systems are all working at the same time. That's why zones and energy system-based training is is pretty inept because you don't go into the... I've used this analogy before, but you don't go into the basement and hit these breaker switches, turning certain systems on and then off as you kind of go up the scale of work. You know, you're getting contributions from different pathways all the time. But... Anaerobic glycolysis is understood to make only about 5% of the usable energy that aerobic glycolysis can. So this is a less energy efficient system, okay? And that's hugely less efficient when you think about it from that point of view. So what that means is the reason why that sand-colored state, right? Um, You know, when you're still on the beach, right? When you're on the beach, everything is relaxed and pleasant and enjoyable, because everything is really efficient and easy. It doesn't mean that you're not using lots of energy, right? If you're going fast, you're using energy. If I work out and I do two times 27 minutes at 250 watts and my heart rate's 150 and I'm like, I don't know, I should probably do that four more times because I don't feel like I'm doing anything. 
and then I pass out at eight o'clock, you know, and sleep for 11 hours, what does that tell you? Right. It tells you that it was really efficient to do, but you still use lots of energy. And that's when you're using a lactate meter. Like, that's why you don't want to, you know, arbitrarily be like, I need to be at two millimole or I need to be at four. Like, you need to work within that capacity of efficiency because every level of work you do higher than the previous level of work you did demands more energy. The reason why you're not seeing accumulating lactate is because your body is still doing a really good job converting that into energy, right? You still have that mitochondrial capacity to keep eating up that lactate. And then when you're past that point, right, now you're out of your beach chair, you're off the towel, and now you're, you know, wading in the water, right? And there's a little bit more resistance, you're, you're working hard. And then when you get out in, you know, to the deep water where you can't see the the bottom of the ocean and the water is dark and scary and you're just like drowning right and you know you're getting sucked out by the riptide and you're getting knocked around by the waves like that's not really a great place to be in and what we think we need to go out like the more we drown the better we're gonna be you know and that's not really true right because you're not actually you know on the beach doing nothing but that's how it feels Right, so there's an optical illusion of perception. Now, why would it make sense to feel like that? Okay, I think that we have these cognitive experiences um, because it's reinforcing us to make certain choices. Where as an athlete, you're going to um, naturally want to be in the states that feel better, more efficient. But we are told, we are psychologically conditioned to perceive that to not be good. You know, and I think that's the downside to coaching is you have this sidelining effect where it's exciting to watch people push themselves. That's why sports are fun. And the problem is, like, how do you get the coach to not also be the spectator? And when the coach is the person who's making these decisions and like a lot of coaches really like control. Okay, and I think it's not just coaches. I think it's a human behavior that people, a lot of people in general, really enjoy feelings of control and power because that equates to a sense of importance and significance. And you know, we like our, we like our hierarchies um, for some reason, but we don't like to be as long as we're on towards the higher end of them. Okay, we like being superior to people, but we hate when people are superior to us. So that's sort of the higher paradox of hierarchical ambition but coaches you know are going to push us in certain directions based on what they see and when you have coaches who discourage athletes from understanding what's going on and they sort of like don't ask don't question what i'm telling you to do like lots of people do this and i think it's partly because they think that it's the right they think that they're doing what's the right thing and the goal is to create that performance and the less the athletes question what you're doing, then the better you're doing as a coach because you've really got control of the team. And I think that's absolutely horrible. And if you do that, don't. If you do that, stop. Your responsibility is to empower other people to think. And I will tell you what will happen from personal experience. If you try to get the athletes to know as much as you can get them to know, number one, they're never going to like know more than quote unquote you do 
all that will happen is because you're now talking about this stuff, you're going to become a way better coach because you're going to start soliciting all of this feedback and all of this information from the athletes that you weren't getting before. Okay. Like you're not suddenly going to become irrelevant. You're going to become super relevant, super valuable. Now, sure, some people aren't going to want that. Some people are going to really think that, no, look, I need to have a coach who doesn't explain anything to me, but just like convinces me to do things and quotes, quotes, motivates me. But, you know, motivation like is best when it's intrinsic. And so you induce that state of intrinsic motivation. And when you create a state like that, what you start to recognize is that athletes are most proficient and are most motivated when they feel good. But what's our our anxiety and the self-doubt? Well, that's the same thing that, you know, I'm describing with my training or the same thing I'm saying that I sort of am imposing um, on that Sam Long example is that we as individuals, you know, question whether or not we're accomplishing anything if we're not struggling. You know, like in a race, you know, we push ourselves and then that creates this best possible result. So as we've talked about in the podcast in the very first episode, that historical idea that the limiting factor to performance is the ability to push ourselves. What should we be practicing? We should be practicing pushing ourselves. But then the understanding that why couldn't people break four minutes in the mile? People are running under well under 50 seconds for the 400. The issue must be endurance. How do we practice endurance? Well, we need to practice endurance in the way that improves endurance. And if it doesn't feel like we're pushing ourselves, oh well, right? That's not the right criteria. The right criteria is the outcome. The body wants us to be efficient. And when we're efficient, like things are better. So here's three things to think about. Natural selection, the law of entropy and the conservation of energy, and then homeostasis. Now, qualifier here is I'm sort of maybe in some ways, you know, sort of stretching um, these a little bit to make the point, but I still think there's some core concept to this. So principle of natural selection. Organisms that can survive efficiently, right, with the least energy demanded are more likely to be naturally selected. You know, and that means that if you're better at surviving, you're more likely to pass on those traits. Because if you're not as good at surviving, you're you're probably not going to get live long enough to have offspring and you're not going to pass on your traits. So if you can be more efficient with energy, you're more likely to survive. So energy efficiency is going to be naturally selected for. And the body will adapt to stress then to handle that stress in the lowest possible energy demand state possible. And organisms are in general, I think only going to spend energy producing, for example, more mitochondria if a survival need has made itself evident that it's needed you know, i.e. training changes the body's sense of environment, okay? So you're trying to put a stress on the body that will cause it to exhibit this response, but it's still going to do it in an energy-efficient way. And so you can be existing in an energy-efficient state and still applying that stress. Now, cognitively, it feels really good to be in a certain state. Why would the body have that kind of a mechanism and like, why does consciousness evolve at all? Well, because consciousness is addicted to certain things and it will drive us to certain states. Feeling good is one of those things. Now, we also know from stuff like, um, you know, addictive, um, destructive substances that like the consciousness can also get tricked, right? So it's like, a, you know, like all mechanisms, it has its limitations. 
But, you know, in an environment, in a state of nature, you know, uh, people weren't running around doing crystal meth, you know, so, you know, we've created sort of these, these things, which we kind of like then have these limitations. But look, historically, right, people are naturally drawn to things that feel good, right? So being on the beach feels good, going to the beach becomes really popular, you know, tobacco, chocolate, alcohol, you know, all these things that people find make them feel good. People are drawn to those and they organize entire societies and, you know, even enslave other people, you know, sugar, um, right, sugar cane, right? We enslave other people to try to increase the production and the availability of these things. So we're totally drawn to this stuff. So that, and why is that, right? Well, because that's the point of being efficient. So being efficient is where we want to be. Um, and that's why that cognitive strain is low. But we've taught ourselves to perceive that as unproductive. Um, how about the law of entropy and the idea of like a conservation of energy? So because organisms will try to use energy efficiently, systems that demand more energy are more unstable and subject to collapse. And by that, we just mean that they're subject to entropy, that a more complex system is harder to maintain right? It's easier to topple. Um, it's more likely to fall apart because it's using more energy, right? And so as a consequence, it's not going to be able to last as long without getting more energy put in, you know? And more energy means uh, more unstable, uh, means more en- entropy, means then it's more short term. So what happens? Like when we're going really hard, right? And we're doing something at a really high level, you know, of performance, that's more complex that requires more energy and we can't sustain that as for long as as words are hard we can't sustain that for as long of a time think of again the example of the one-time five-minute miler who might get to the point where they can run five minutes a mile for 20 miles okay you know you're not doing that because you're extending that same sensation that you once had at the five running the one mile in five minutes. Instead, it's very different, right? Now, you know, you run a mile in five minutes and it feels like a joke. You know, that's a huge transformation, right? So you're bringing those levels of performance into that, you know, being on the beach zone, that everything is in my control and I feel very competent. And, you know, expanding the low energy capacity to do work And maybe we shouldn't say low energy, but expanding the high efficiency capacity to do work um, is the most stable solution then to handle the greater costs, uh, the greater levels of work demanded. And what that would mean is like doing things within that state where, okay, we can basically do this under mitochondrial mechanisms. And we know if that's happening because we're still at that lactate steady state, okay? And when the lactate starts to accumulate, well, now we know that we've exceeded the capacity of that most efficient system. We also know over the long term that the only way you can get from being a dubber to being a world-class performer, and the reality is that all people who are world-class had to do some level of transformation to go from that to being that. That doesn't mean that everybody can be world-class. Like We literally can't all be world-class because world class is always based on the idea of like taking a percentile of the participating population, okay? And you're always going to be able to find, you know, that percentile, right? If the Peloton at the World Tour races um, is 120 people, then like it will always be 120 people. And if everybody gets really good, 
and that Peloton is 120 people, we can't all be in the world tour because that's capped at 120, right? And so some, so then it will be like, who has the most followers on social media? And guess what? That's already been happening. Um, but I digress. So the third thing here is homeostasis. So the body-mind system, if you want to describe it like that, regulates work by sending cognitive distress symptoms to the conscious part of the brain. The conscious part, that self-identity complex, responds um, by pushing us back into the most energy-efficient and homeostatic state of energy used to survive. That specifically means increasing the size of the work range possible in the low energy state. So over that, you know, we can go above and beyond that. We can. We see that all the time. But it's based on that underlying state, right? So we make our beach bigger, right? And we make that beach more comfortable and more expansive. Like if we want to go further offshore, and by the way, I don't think that we should fill in the ocean with sand. This is not some, you know, anti-environmentalist dog whistle. But what in a sense, right? We're like the comfort zone is being on dry land, <laughs> not going out and drowning, right? If we go too far off, we're sure we're going to drown. So in theory, right, if we want to reach further out, right, that beach would have to expand or the tide would have to go out, right, in that sense. And now we can go further out um, and be really comfortable and easy. You know, when you if you ever go to Popham Beach in Maine, right, when the tide's out, you can walk on the sandbar um, all the way out to the island just off the shore. And when the tide is in, you know, you'd have to swim all the way out there, you know, it'd be potentially dangerous, right? Like, you're not going to do that, right? So like, that's how you're what it looks like to expand your level of competency and performance. Now, the short term response that we experience is to use higher levels of energy that are less efficient. Um, at the same time, that the brain is also experiencing generating these distress signals to the consciousness to get us to try to return to the energy efficient zone. So long-term, the body responds by trying to expand the easy zone to create greater energy efficiency. Specifically, that means that if we frequently apply stress to a particular state of work, the body will try to become more efficient in that area too. That's why all training intensities can affect you know, all three of these states or zones to some extent. Right? You can train you know, at any intensity and still exhibit improvement, but... Training is about opportunity cost. It's not like, can I get some level of improvement? It's like, where can I get the most improvement, right? And the differences in the level of improvement, you know, you get way more improvement, you know, and it's ironic, but it shouldn't be. Train, don't strain is sitting on the beach. No pain, no gain is like, oh, go out there, you know, where you can't touch the bottom and start drowning, okay? Um, you know, <laughs> like, train, don't strain, right? we think of that as unproductive because for some reason we think drowning feels productive. Um, and these training zones, as we have created them, they're social constructs. You know, I hate to burst the bubble of the entire, um, you know, coaching schedules for sale community. Tell the like, let me pay you to give me the workouts because this is so like, cryptic that I would, you know, need to dig up a Rosetta Stone to even begin to make sense of this kind of thing, right? That barrier of understanding creates the market. Um, these training zones only exist because of the body's opportunity cost of survival versus energy efficiency. And it's really the mitochondrial function that determines whether or not the lactate will accumulate. 
So all else being equal, less lactate should result from more mitochondria. So that then is why, you know, the lactate stuff is significant. Um, and when people don't understand the lactate and they don't establish correctly, like where am I, how am I using that to find that tipping point, you know, from being on the beach to being in the water, then like you're kind of screwed, right? And you're not going to be able to get that value. And uh, in that same Sam Long video, he basically said, there's, uh, you know, testing lactate and training doesn't do anything for me. And look, testing lactate and training doesn't like, that doesn't like add benefit automatically. But it, it, the reality is everybody has that tipping point. And so when you're saying, you know, testing the lactate doesn't work for me, well, the question would be not really about the lactate. It's like, are you identifying that limit? And I would say on that run situation, when you're feeling really good like that, that would be a great opportunity to test the lactate. Now, if, let's just say hypothetically, um, you know, let's say that Sam Long's um, lactate threshold occurs at 1.1 millimole, okay? But if he thinks it's two, right, because that's what he's reading and that's what everybody is circulating, well, then that isn't going to work for him. It's not going to be helpful. And that's the kind of stuff that's going to lead to this stuff being totally abandoned. Now, why do we see variance in lactate threshold numbers for different people? I've kind of speculated on this before, um, and I should acknowledge again that I really don't know the specific answer to that. I know that changes in blood volume and blood plasma can change that concentration. Um, but I think what's more important is that, you know, dismissing the lactate threshold stuff, which is going to happen, you know, I can say whatever on this pod and that's not going to have any impact on that, right? The reality is this is this podcast is not a cultural driver within endurance sports training, you know, shed a tear, right? Pour one out for the lack of cultural influence of the podcast. But um, the reality is, is that if we thought about this from an opportunity cost perspective, we might be like, okay, if it, I need to figure this out because there is a state here. And, you know, like Arthur Lydiard's comment in one of his interviews was like, well, when we did the, the interval training, like we couldn't really control the form, you know, we couldn't really, basically we, our, our fatigue was like unpredictable, right? And I think he was talking about that deep muscular fatigue. And then, you know, he says, and then as a consequence, you know, when we, when we changed, you know, to this, you know, a, you know, aerobic type concept, you know, we could really peak on the day. So then people say, oh, well, it's all about peaking because people just cut straight to that, like, you know, what's the most glorified outcome of that? But I think what really is saying is like when you have unpredictable fatigue, you can't plan your training out in advance because you don't know how you're going to feel. Right. And people have this problem all the time where they're like, oh, I'm going to do this workout and it's going to be dope. And then the next day I'm going to go out and do this and then I'm going to do that. And then, you know, they do that workout and then they're totally destroyed. And then the things they had for the next days, they can't do. And so now their plan is useless. And so now having a plan just doesn't really work at all. And so thinking about that, right, concept of, and this is the Marius, you know, back in truism of like the muscular fatigue is the thing that's limiting your ability to improve because the muscular fatigue literally limits your ability to train. Now, where do we get the muscular fatigue? When we get off the beach and we get in the water, you know, that's when we're applying all of this additional, you know, strain, 
okay? But we want to sort of be on the margin, right? And, you know, in a sense, like, if we do it the right way, the tide will naturally go out, and that beachfront will expand, you know? And we're going to be able to then go further and further, you know, out, you know, and yet still be comfortable and still be competent. And that's what we want to try to get to, I think, in our training. Now, here's a practical example. So, yesterday... I did another workout on the bike, and whereas on Thursday, um, the Thursday before recording this anyway, uh, on Thursday I had done, you know, the two 27-minute, you know, efforts, you know, of lactate threshold, um, here I did something different, and for this session, what I did um, was three sets of 20 times 30 seconds, at 240 watts and then 15 seconds and 180 watts and now this some people would be like oh yeah 30 15s and depending on how deep into the weeds you are with this stuff you've probably heard you know that and that's something I've only come across recently um and it had no inspiration on this you know I've had this concept for a long time for myself um of like you know take the faster running and just do a lot of it by kind of like breaking it up Right. And I would say the original experience for that for me was, you know, in running, you know, doing the idea of 200s of like the concept of what a 200 represents to a to a middle distance runner. Right. A 200 is something where you're like it's sort of seen to practice speed and that 400s are where you're you know practicing strength or race pace. And so I think that that initial understanding has sort of like fed into this over time and. So with this session, right, you know, I do three sets of this and I take a 145, you know, rest in between each of the three intervals, I guess you could say each of the sets, really. Um, And each set takes about 15 minutes, right? So, you know, the reality is, is you might compare that, you know, you could say, well, you're really not accomplishing, you know, very much or like, why are you breaking up? You should just do it all continuously, well, because the goal of the work is to like apply productive stress, right? Just to be, I want to be on the beach. And sometimes I want to be really close to the water. Sometimes I can even get my feet wet, but I really basically want to be on the beach. And so the strategy here is to be on the beach. So by taking these 15 seconds, you know, alternating 30 seconds at 240 watts, 15 seconds at, um, easier watts like I'm coasting the muscular work okay if I had come out and tried to do three by ten minutes straight up okay or four by ten minutes straight up it might have been like really uncomfortable and it might have you know with the lactate would have been like accumulating and I would have been over my level and then I would have been back in the hole okay and so what are my three choices okay my first choice in no, not necessarily in order of preference, right? But number one, I could be, okay, I want to do training effect, four by 10 minutes lactate threshold, all right? Number two, okay, I did a workout, I got to take it easy, let me just sort of, you know, double long for 60 minutes on the trainer, okay, at 160 watts or 175 watts. My third option is to try to say, can I access that sort of system, right, but can I do it in a way that's not going to be adding fatigue? And that's what you're accomplishing here, 
right, is I can go out and I can do this at this level where I can use these 15 second periods every 30 seconds, right, have a 15 second back off. And when you look at what the graph for this is, what you see is that while the power is going up and down and up and down and up and down by, um, you know, 60 watts, the heart rate is basically unchanging, right? So my uh, average heart rate um, across these sets was about 146, 147 beats. And the variance in the heart rate in the set was like basically from like, you know, one, you know, 44 to like 150, right? So from a card, so, you know, for me, I'd say from a cardiovascular state, right, I'm making this same sort of demand. And if you think that heart rate is a reasonable reflection of stress, then, you know, you see that. But you can also feel like it doesn't feel like, oh, I'm really on and I'm off. It's at the level where you can borderline, it borderline feels like you're just going steady, right, the whole time. And you don't even notice, you hardly even notice this fluctuation, even though it's 60 watts, which is, you know, a big change. It's a big difference in work. You don't even really notice anything. And then, you know, the average power, which maybe doesn't really matter that much, but the average power is still 220. So it's still well within that idea of like 70 to 100% of lactate threshold is where you're productive. So I'm at 220 out of a possible maybe 240 or maybe my lactate threshold. Let's, you know, say even if it was 250, right? I'm still in that state, okay? And so I do this, right? And now what's the opportunity cost? I can't do the four by 10 minutes because that's going to be too hard today because of what I had done the day before. But this is no more fatiguing than just going along, you know, at a self-selected, easy, relaxed effort. It's basically no more fatiguing. Um, or if it is more fatiguing, it's marginally so, negligibly so, but way more beneficial in terms of like, am I training, right? Right. So the idea is I don't want to strain, okay? So when we make these kinds of comparisons and we think about what am I trying to accomplish overall and what's the most effective thing I can do relative to my other options, that's when we start to see ourselves getting better because let's be honest, a part of doing this stuff is comparison, whether that's comparison to specific individuals or just comparison to sort of like the socially constructed model of how much improvement is possible. If we can exceed either of those things, then we really get that fulfilled sense of like, I'm figuring something out. And this isn't like a hack, right? You're doing this this work. It's, it's not a shortcut, right? And I ended up spending... I think probably, you know, and then the reality is I don't think it's really that significant, but I spent, you know, about eight or nine more minutes riding doing this than I would have if I just done my usual standard 60 minutes on, on the trainer. And, you know, the caveat, right, is on the trainer. I think for most people, we're pedaling nonstop, whereas when we ride outside, we really don't pedal nonstop. So I think that means on the trainer, you know, trainer minutes, you know, are more similar in some ways to running minutes because you're constantly working. That's sort of the um, natural instinct on the trainer, I think, for most of us. So when we're thinking about what we want to be trying to do when we're developing our training, I think if we think about across this time scale, okay, of like 
how does our spectrum of effort transition across levels of work? That it's not about getting out into the water and that we need to engage with drowning. That actually we're going to be in a state that it feels like we're not doing anything. And that's the whole key because that's the, that means we're practicing with proficiency. That means we can get better right? It's fun to be at the beach, but it's not fun to drown. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Black Cats Run. If you've enjoyed this or other episodes, we'd greatly appreciate it if you recommend it to somebody or some buddies that you know that would also appreciate the kinds of questions or conversations we have here on the podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can also check us out on Instagram at Black Cats Run. You can send us a message. Let us know what other questions or topics you'd like to hear more about on the pod. And we're also available for consultation if you're wondering how you can apply these concepts to your own training. In our next episode, further deep mysteries of the universe will be fundamentally unraveled. We'll catch you next time.